I started preaching at the end of every message. If you're not in a small group, you're not going to make it through this COVID. Well, good morning, North Point Community Church. You're probably wondering when in the world does Rick Warren and car detailing has to do with this morning's message and oh yeah, and, and why I'm talking to you through this cupboard. But anyways, that doesn't matter. This morning, we're continuing our series on life groups and the title of this series is called Pathway um, to Connection or Pathway of Connections. And we're going to be taking a look at a particular passage from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. So I'm going to have the scripture on the screen. So you can go ahead and read aloud with me. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, Jay and I have been here at North Point for over 11 years now, and when we first came here, we were so welcomed into this community, but furthermore, we had the opportunity to be a part of a whole host of life groups. And I remember the first life group that we were a part of, it was multicultural, it was multi-generational, and it was really a place where we felt like home, we could be ourselves, and where we grew a lot. It was a place that challenged us, and it was a place, most importantly, where we found healing and found restoration as well. And so we're going to be talking about life groups, and we're going to talk about the importance of that. But this passage really helps set the stage for us to understand what it means to be open to one another. And I remember in Bible college, my Bible professor would always um, nail us on the word therefore. And he'd always say, if there's a therefore, you need to ask why is, you know, what is the therefore there for? Uh, pretty clever. And so anytime we take a look at a passage, we always take a look at what is the paragraph sentences before the passage and after the passage. And we'll kind of take a look at that today. I'm going to implore uh, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. He's going to kind of talk about chapters 9 and 10 for us. We'll see you in a bit. Which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So as Tim explained in the Bible Project, 
We can see that the Old Testament wasn't useless. Uh, in fact, it served its purpose, and its purpose was superseded by the only one priest that was holy enough to present the once and for all sacrifice, Jesus Christ. A uh, fun fact, in back in the Old Testament, when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, they would actually carry a bell uh, on them, and there would be a rope that would extend all the way throughout the curtains of the inner courts. And this was so so that when the high priest would make his sacrifices um, in the Holy of Holies, if that priest was not holy or did not actually keep uh, the purity rules, what would happen is that the servants on the outside or the other priests on the outside, they would listen and they would listen for the bell. And if that bell stopped ringing, it meant that he died and you have to drag him out. I know pretty morbid. And they would send in another high priest to do that. And so therefore, many times the, the priestly sacrifices weren't even accepted by God because of the fact of the unholiness of the high priest. And so that's why Jesus becomes the only true high priest who is able to actually mediate without sin and also present a sacrifice completely without blemish himself, Jesus Christ. Now, have you ever wondered why the people of the Old Testament kept on repeating the same mistakes? They, God would have a command and the people of Israel would continue to break those commands and become punished by God. And it always kind of bothered me. Like, like, why can't they just, like, here's the Old Testament, here are the rules, just follow the rules and you'd be fine. And until I began actually taking a look at this and kind of understanding what is really the true purpose of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament purpose, we can actually see this in uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. And Paul says this, the purpose of the law, its purpose was to reveal sin. It was to reveal guilt. And the purpose of the law was to just point to the fact that, hey, there is sin in this world. And, but it didn't actually get rid of the sin. And just like the sacrifices by the priests couldn't actually resolve sin, it only pointed to the reality that, hey, you are a sinful people. And this kind of didn't make as much sense until I eventually kind of dug a little bit further and looked into Romans chapter 7. And in Romans chapter 7, it actually talks about sin being held like a prisoner by the people of God and most importantly, the law. The purpose of the law was to, sh to shine a light on the fact that here is sin and is going to contain the sin in the people of God until the one true Messiah would come and deal with sin once and for all. Uh, one translation, the New Living Translation, puts it this way. Uh, it says that the sin and his people was placed in protective custody. And so that kind of made a little bit more sense and it helped me understand that, hey, the law and the sacrifices wasn't able to deal with sin. It was only able to highlight the reality of sin. The best way I can describe this is by, and there's probably a video playing right now in the background, of I've been obsessed with detailing cars. And one of the things that's really therapeutic is watching when a car is absolutely filthy 
and it becomes and what happened to detailer is that they vacuum and then they you know they agitate all the dirt and they get rid of it and they suction up with an extraction and and they make it all look really nice it's actually really therapeutic i love watching this um and the analogy that i want to present is that it's like the people of israel just kept on getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier and there wasn't anything they could do about it we're now going to take a look at verse 21, uh, 22, sorry, verse 22, 23, 24, and 25. And they have three let us. The first one saying, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The psalmist would pray uh, that their mercies would be new every morning. But do you realize that that was really a prayer of faith? Because it wasn't something that they could fully experience. Uh, as we had said earlier, uh, a few minutes ago, that the, the sin of the people weren't actually dealt with completely in its entirety. And that the weight of sin would actually bear down on the people of God. And the, the sacrifices were only symbolic of pointing to a time when it would be actually dealt with. And this particular passage uh, provides a lot of solace and a lot of comfort for me. Um, and really for, and it should be comforting to anyone who's actually looking at this passage, just because of the fact that in it we read the good news. Let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from are evil from an evil conscience. So that basically means that every, and this is the way that I've understood it, for a person that is sinful like myself, I take a look at all the things that I've done in the past and with as much regret and remorse that I have coming before the Father, coming before Jesus for forgiveness, I still understand that, like, I still have memories. Um... And some of those memories aren't very pleasant, and neither am I uh, proud of them. Uh, they haunt me. And it wasn't until a pastor brought me to this passage to help me understand, wait a second, Jesus has the ability to be able to take those thoughts and those memories and to begin a healing process. And that was, I, I never actually thought about asking Jesus to heal my memories, uh, and I'm thankful for professionals like counselors and therapists who help people maybe relive that pain um, without being re-victimized and, and just being able to find healing of just processing some of those hurtful memories. Uh, during uh, one of my posts uh, on Facebook and Instagram, I had talked about how um, I was going to bring up the fact that uh, why I took a break from social media. And, and the reason why I did was um, it was something that I wanted to do for Lent and, and give it uh, a break for a bit. But there's one thing that I also noticed about social media that um, as I listen to a lot of experts who talk about this field and how it affects mental health, there's a lot that I'm very thankful about social media. I'm thankful for the way that we're able to connect with people, how certain things are brought to light, uh, certain movements 
Black Lives Matter um, and, and being able to raise all the injustices as happened, Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, and, and whatnot, and some of the, the racist crimes that has taken place over, uh, you know, the however long social media has been around to, to bring to our attention. But at the same time, uh, experts and psychologists have been able to notice that social media has also uh, caused a lot of anxiety and depression, um, where people are feeling inadequate about themselves. They, they feel inadequate about their life um, because they're comparing um, their life to others. And so there's envy that begins to take place. The anxiety and depression comes from just the way that um, they feel people feel poorly about their appearance. Uh, the whole f FOMO, fear of missing out, uh, feeling isolated. Uh, there are challenges that social media brings. And when I'm posting, you know, I'll be the first one to admit the fact that, hey, I'm taking a look at all oh, who's liking, who's commenting, and, and realizing that, you know, over time, I'm starting to get a little bit obsessed about this. And it's starting to kind of take over uh, the time that I have that I basically had to put the brakes um, and I'm so thankful for the period of Lent to allow me to do that because then I started to realize that, hey, I can actually begin to have intentional relationships. And so therefore, taking a break from social media allowed me to just kind of just be intentional with the people that I wanted to connect with, uh, the people that perhaps the algorithm wouldn't bring to my attention to reach out to. Um, and so it was a really, really good break. In verse 23, we have the second of the let us, and it reads, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And so what is this faithfulness that the writer of Hebrews is speaking to? And so earlier in the passage in verse 10, he writes this, This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts so they will understand them and I will write them on their minds so they will obey them. The prophet Joel too would say that in those days I will pour my spirit out on all people. And so the thing that we also take for granted in the Old Testament is that not everyone received the Holy Spirit. Only certain kings, only certain priests, prophets, uh, anointed people would receive his actual spirit, the Holy Spirit, but not everyone had that. And so you can understand why it was easy for a lot of the people in the Old Testament to just, well, if they didn't have the law in front of them or they didn't memorize it or whatever it may be, they would sin. They didn't have that conscience that is brought by the Holy Spirit. And something that we don't take, we, we take for granted is the fact that the Holy Spirit is amongst us right now. And the writer, on the, Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews also goes on to, to say this um, in verse 11, uh, in chapter 11 and so forth, uh, he says this, But others trusted God and were tortured, preferring to die rather than turn from God and be free. They placed their hope in the resurrection to a better life. Some were mocked 
and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in dungeons. Some died by stoning, and some were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went about in skins of sheep and goats, hungry and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. They wandered over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All of these people we have mentioned received God's approval because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had far better things in mind for us that would also benefit them, for they can't receive the prize at the end of the race until we finish the race. And so the writer in the Hebrews basically says that there are people before Jesus that long to see the day of the arrival of the Messiah, to see the day the promised Holy Spirit come, the day to be able to experience what it means to have their sins forgiven. And so the writer of the Hebrews is trying to remind his audience that God has been faithful. And so just as God is asking them to be faithful, he's asking us to be faithful as well. And during this period of this lockdown, it has been trying. I I absolutely admit that. And so the promises that God is going to create a new earth and a new heaven, that God's going to renew all things and restore all things, may seem pretty far-fetched right now. It's easy to maybe think and give up, but uh, I'm praying that as we continue together and as we meet together and as we share together, that that will provide us encouragement. We come to the third let us, and I'm going to consider this the application of our passage. And so I'll read, and let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day coming. It's uh, the thing that, um, that I looked at carefully is this phrase here, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And I've heard of sermons where the the preacher or the pastor uh, uses this as in good intentions to be an encouragement for people who don't go to life group, for example. And I and I really don't want to do that. And I don't think it's used in a proper way. And so therefore, I want to present the actual context. And so I'm going to be reading from Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 32. Uh, to 34, and this provides the context of what the type of persecution that the the readers of uh, the Hebrews were going through. Don't ever forget those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten, and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail when all you owned was taken from you. You accepted it with joy. You knew you had better things waiting for you in eternity. Uh, and, and so I, I really want to implore that we do our best to provide empathy for those who aren't connected um, into a life group or whatever. There, there are certain mitigating circumstances that we may not understand. And in the particular case of the Hebrews, there's a psychological term called learned helplessness. And I'll play that video. What is learned helplessness? Well, in India, when elephant trainers catch a baby elephant, 
they tie its legs with a rope to a post. And this baby elephant will struggle for days trying to break free, and it eventually gives up when it learns that it's useless. When it grows up, these trainers keep it tied using the same rope. And even though it's now strong enough to break free and escape, the elephant stands around waiting for the trainers because it's learned that it's meaningless. This elephant has developed what's known as learned helplessness. And this is the fact that despite having the power to change its situation, it's learned to feel helpless instead because of the past. It was identified by a scientist in the 1960s who do the same thing by shocking dogs. Highly unethical, of course. But what does this have to do with us? Well, in your life, you may have experienced a crushing defeat and learned that there's just no way to overcome it. Maybe it's not the case. Maybe that's just a story you've told yourself. Just think about it. If the average person does poorly on a test, they'll say the professor was too hard a marker. Whereas a clinically depressed person will blame themselves for not being smart enough. In both cases, the moment you give up, you've learned to be helpless of the situation. So in what ways has learned helplessness affected you? And so it seems that when we're engrossed in our fears, in our pain, in our loneliness, it seems that nothing might help. And so there's this idea that we just give up a sensation of like, just, hey, I, I'm not going to try anymore. Um, and who's been there before? Like I know for myself, I've been there before. And so uh, in the next few um, points I want to make, they're, they're really simple. Uh, the first one is empathy. And I'm going to play something from Rick Warren that just kind of shares about what perhaps is um, the landscape that we might be looking at post-COVID. How do I keep going? What do I do? And, and to all of us as leaders who are going through a year of, of so much loss, how do we well, keep our North Star? It, it, like I said, that we're going to go through a tsunami of grief because a lot of people who will never um, get COVID have still lost a lot. They missed the prom. They missed their graduation. Uh, they missed the birth of their first grandchild. Uh, they, 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 they couldn't go to their daddy's um, uh, you know, a funeral. Uh, there, there's so many things that, that people have lost that, um, you know, uh, when it finally catches on and fi people finally get that and they, they realize what they've lost, there is going to be a lot of grief. And that's why I actually believe that grief is going to be a front door for evangelism. Here's a very important thing in dealing with people in pain. The deeper the pain, the fewer words you use. Every pastor needs to write this down. The deeper the pain, the fewer words you use. If, if you are talking to somebody who had a bad hair day, you can talk to them for 30 minutes. But, but if they just lost a wife or a son, you show up and you shut up. There's nothing you can say that will help. They don't need your words. They need you. It's the ministry of presence. Pastors and people always go, I, I didn't call them because I didn't know what to say. Don't say anything. Show up and shut up. It's the ministry of presence. Just be there. Yeah, show up and shut up. Uh, probably the best uh, advice I've ever been given on how to deal with people going through pain and grief and the gift of presence. And we can only do that. We can only open up to one another 
if we have empathy. It's so easy to judge those that are on the fringes and ask, you know, why are they not connected? Uh, And I'm reminded that Jesus is a shepherd and shepherds don't lead from the front. In fact, they lead from the back. And, And the reason being is that they are there to protect the weakest, the slowest, the ones that are injured. And it's a little bit different from this Darwinian thought of survival of the fittest. And one of the things that brings me hope is I take a look at our world. I know that God's kingdom is here as it is in heaven because of the ways the glimpses of the kingdom is breaking through. I I see how those who can't speak for themselves have advocates and you can fill in the blank for whatever cause there is. And so we need a lot of empathy a lot of empathy for one another and being curious about why people aren't connected and asking really good questions um, instead of judging or coming to uh, certain conclusions. The second um, application point that you can take away uh, is this, that you are integral to our community. Um, If you're watching this, whether it be uh, on, if you're in Calgary watching this or somewhere around the world, know that your presence actually matters. We've all heard the analogies about, you know, being part of the body and the I can't say to certain other parts of the body that I don't need you and vice versa. But know that it makes a difference in our community. Um, It's something that I wrote down for myself is that you are the vital key to the health and success of our community. You're the vital key being part of North Point or whatever community that you plug yourself into. Be immersed in that community and know that you make a difference. And finally, uh, the last application piece that I wanted to present is from a passage from John chapter 14 verse 12. And John chapter 14, verse 12 says this. The truth is, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. I'll repeat that again. The truth is, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. I want to leave with... Um, this research I was doing about the first heart transplant that ever took place. Uh, It took place in 1967 in South Africa and the surgeon's name is Christian Bernard and he was the third son of four in his family and his father was a minister. Uh, His father actually dedicated his life to dealing with Uh, some of the atrocities from the apartheid and gave himself to a congregation of mixed people in his congregation. And because of that, he was paid a lot less money. um, And so they were actually quite poor. And eventually this son, Christian Bernard, eventually became the first surgeon who transplanted a heart. and that only happened like over 50 years ago. Like it's like, it seems like it was yesterday. Like 50 years isn't very long. And it seems so amazing that 
people are doing things, feats of miracles that just seems crazy. Now the, the irony of this whole thing, of this man's story, is the fact that he died with a broken heart actually. He was divorced three times and one of the regrets that he had, um, one reporter asked, you know, if there's anything that you regret not doing, what do you regret? And, and the, the first thing he said was, I regret not actually trying to make a difference in my community and not being an advocate for those who needed justice. Here's a man who's, who performed thousands and thousands of heart surgeries, and yet the only thing he regretted was not being a brother and a sister to his neighbor. And so you don't have to be a heart surgeon. You don't have to bring someone to life. Know that the greatest gift he could possibly give to one another is picking up the phone and just calling someone for five minutes, maybe helping them not have a better day or talk them off the ledge. Um, you know, emotionally speaking. It's know that you have been equipped with everything that you need to make the biggest difference in people's lives, in your friends' lives, in your family's lives, in your community's lives, in your workplace. Um, know that God has given you the gift to do that. Uh, being empathetic, knowing that you make a difference, that you're the key to the success of the community and the, the surrounding areas and knowing that God has entrusted you to do great and greater things that he has done. Thank you. Be blessed.